0: I don't think that they always recognize that most students that are coming into animal science today, at least in my experience, um, come in planning to be veterinarians, right? Because they don't know another professional animal scientist. And uh, likewise, most of them have no intent of ever working in the swine industry. And so it's really important, again, from the mentorship side to help them gain exposure um to the swine industry to gain exposure to nutrition and the careers and the opportunities and the sophistication of the science and the impact that you can have within it i also very much want to express my appreciation to those folks that have have and continue to offer internships so that students that you know maybe if we can convince them to uh to maybe even look at the swine industry there's a lot of internship opportunities and um that are willing to take a shot on students that don't have a significant background in the swine industry. Those are very, very impactful for
1: our students. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. SwineNet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse. Your manure management experts. MS Gold. The best hygiene products in livestock farming. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Cassie Jones, who's a professor and education coordinator, a teaching coordinator at
0: the Kansas State University and the Department of Animal Science. Cassie, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on today. And it's a pleasure to get to visit with another educator in the middle of our school day. Yeah, it's Wonderful.
2: So um, before we actually get started in our conversation, maybe give the audience a little bit of your background. Um, some may not be familiar with with you or kind of how you got to where you're at
0: today. Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in a small town in North Dakota and um, did a lot of kind of the 4-H and FFA types of activities. Uh, I rebelled my own way by uh, my mom grew up on an Angus cattle ranch. My dad um, raised frame sheep. And so my way of rebelling, I guess, was that I loved pigs. And um, actually, from the 4-H perspective, I really fell in love with the nutrition side because um, it was just so interesting to see how in that kind of six-month period of time when we would, you know, buy animals um, and and we just showed pigs over the summer, so we would buy them as as um, you know early show pigs in March, and then kind of raise them through August, um, through county and state fair, and and it was just amazing how little changes in nutrition and feed additives and management could impact in animals so substantially, and that ability to see that so quickly. You know, even compared to sheep or cattle, you know, other species that I that I was that I was used to growing up with was just really interesting to me. And so that kind of sparked an interest in in swine and specifically in nutrition. And so as so I was looking at kind of where to go to school and what types of things to do, I found K-State and their swine nutrition program as, as an undergrad. And so I got my bachelor's and my master's degree in swine nutrition at K-State. Uh, I always tell my students that if you love pigs, you've got to spend some time in Iowa, at least. And so I was fortunate to work with Dr. John Patience on my PhD at Iowa State. And then I've been back on faculty at K-State really ever since. And so I I was very fortunate to to get a faculty role straight out of school and have been on faculty at K-State now for just about 11 years.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really incredible. And the thing that I think about too is your role at Kansas State has changed quite a bit. So you, you kind of slid into like a feed mail coordinator. Education is what I always think of you as. And now you're, you've changed over to teaching. So how has that evolved for you?
0: Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I kind of get bored every five years, right? And so I think in an academic institution, uh, it's hard to kind of, Move up or around or different things, but uh, at the same time, I love I love academia, I love education, um, and so I've been able to kind of rebrand and shift my focus every five years or so. So I was um, hired into originally the Department of Brain Science, um, and in a feed manufacturing or or a feed technologist role. Um, a lot of my background and initial research was on the impact of um, feed processing on nutrient characteristics, um, digestibility. And so that really lent itself well to that program. Um, Then that kind of led to some feed safety items where I was a, a new faculty member in the midst of the initial PEDV outbreak. And um, actually, you and I worked together um, when you were in industry at the time, and I was kind of on the academic side, trying to understand the potential role of feed or feed-based transmission of pathogens um, as we were trying to learn that aspect. But uh, I really loved that period of time. I was kind of in a split appointment that was heavier research, but I missed students, and I know my heart is in teaching, and I knew my heart was in teaching, and so there was an opportunity to come across the street to the Department of Animal Science and um, basically double my teaching appointment. And that is a very small program, unlimited number of students. And, um, you know, I had about 20 advisees. Um, Animal Science at K-State is about the same size as Iowa State. So it's a very large program, largest major on our campus. And so it just afforded me the opportunity to work with more students and spend more of my time directly with students. That comes at a cost because that means I need to take a little bit of a step away from research. Still, certainly do some, but um, not as much as I did in my initial brain science days. And then about two years ago, uh, again, I kind of got bored and um, loved what I was doing, but had the opportunity with some retirements. Uh, many folks in the industry would know Dr. Dave Nichols, who's been our teaching coordinator for decades in the Department of Animal Sciences. As he was transitioning into retirement. I had the opportunity to step into that role and serve as teaching coordinator. And so I still teach a lot of classes, advise students. I have a research appointment still. But I also now have some administrative responsibilities, um, a little bit more on making sure we have the right classes taught and that we're covering the right types of content in those classes and we're offering them at the right times. And so a little bit more administrative capacity, um, but it's still by far the most um, student interaction that I've ever had. And so I really enjoy it.
2: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And it really kind of leads us into what we wanted to talk about today. And what we really were going to talk about today is If you're interested in swine nutrition and you're thinking that you want something beyond the undergraduate program, how do you get involved and and go through the grad school process? And how do you know if that program is right for you? And um, listening to you tell your story, you were one that knew very early on that nutrition was something of interest and pigs were something of interest. And so maybe let's just kind of start there. Um, There are some out there who don't know that. Uh, when they're in their teen years, they won't discover it maybe till they're even a junior in in college. And so how do you or what would you recommend to students if they're kind of on the fence about whether or not they should even consider graduate school?
0: Yeah, you are spot on. And I I would imagine that your demographics at Iowa State and really all across the country look pretty similar to ours in terms of incoming students are predominantly pre-vet. Um, and so uh, we see about 75 to 80 percent of our students that are coming into our departments come in labeled or labeling themselves or classifying themselves as pre vet. And um, I tend to kind of even do our prospective student visits and talk about how um, many times a student resonates with something like pre vet because they know they love animals and they want to work in an animal industry and they know that they like science but they maybe have never met another professional animal scientist. And they've never even imagined what a professional career in animal science looks like beyond a veterinarian. And so the veterinarian is the only professional animal scientist they've met, they understand, they know of. And so that's the profession that they that they think about. And so that's some of the fun that we get to expose them to throughout our, our job is educating them and in college and kind of guiding them during that process is helping them understand all of the careers that are in animal agriculture and uh, certainly help them that if they are intentional and, and interested in being a veterinarian, we help them along that process. But we also expose them to the different careers that they maybe never thought of. And I teach one of those kind of intro nutrition courses and talk a lot about um, you know the decisions that we make to keep animals and produce animals and um, the proportion of money that we spend on their health relative to their reproduction and replacement relative to their nutrition. And so um, sometimes I'll make the comment that, you know, I I love the nutrition side because that's the one that, you know, I I usually draw a comparison on the beef cattle side because my husband's a rancher, right? That's the one that in order to sustain ourselves as a business in production agriculture, we've really got the nutrition, got to get that nutrition right. And um, that's the place that we can maintain some economic viability. And so that's something that tends to resonate with students. And so usually we have, I'd say, most of our nutrition-interested students probably come in as pre-vet. Um, some of them are aware of swine nutrition or nutrition in general. But again, most of them have never even imagined that as a career and are kind of surprised that, oh, there's, there's anal nutritionists, just like there's human nutritionists. So that's kind of interesting and weird. I've never thought about that. But again, I think it helps as we kind of help them through that transition as they love science and they want to make an impact within the animal agriculture industry. Nutrition can certainly be a significant role in that.
2: What about the swine side? So Mm -hmm. normally a predominant number of our students coming into animal science are going to be focused more on companion animal or possibly down in Kansas, probably more beef cattle than swine. And so how do you lure them over to kind of the dark side, if you will, right, over <laughs> into the swine swine area? I mean, I think that I find that intriguing when you hear of, um, and I've had them myself, graduate students that have no background or employees that have had no background in pigs that later choose pigs as a profession. So how do we help make that connection?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great one. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. You know, I, I, we typically see kind of two, two types of kids that come to us. Um, they either have swine background, but it is from the show, from the youth livestock industry perspective, or they have none. You know, there's just not that many commercial swine kids that, um, you know, there are some and they're great and I love them, but just in terms of sheer numbers, we see far more that If they have any swine background at all, it's really from the youth livestock program Um, or they really maybe have never even touched a pig. And in both cases, they're relatively unaware of what commercial swine production looks like and some of the considerations and some of the challenges and even just the technological advances and the level of scientific understanding that we operate at. And so that's really, it's an interesting place because, um, you know, as you help make those kind of show students transition into understanding where are their careers and where are their, um, the high paying jobs that can help them make an impact in this industry that they're, that they, that they grew up loving. And so how do you help them make that transition into a professional role? And then likewise, on the other side where we have students that maybe come in with, an idea of what commercial swine production is and maybe their initial thoughts are not always that that's where I want to work, right? Whether they're a beef background kid or maybe someone from, you know, we have a lot of urban students from the Kansas city area. Many times we'll start with, um, you know, most of our students will, will uh, the average student, I'd say probably comes in interested in companion animal medicine, maybe mixed practice disproportionate number of them want to be exotic animal veterinarians, right? And so you'd think that there are lots and lots of tiger veterinarians in the world, given the number of students that kind of express that interest coming in. And so we start some of those conversations. And what do we use as our model species in the core nutrition class? We use the pig and we use the cow. And so we're a bit unapologetic about that. um, And but we address it right away. You know, Why do we use the pig as our base animal species for the monogastric animal that we use for comparative purposes in all of the monogastric species? It's the one we know the most about, but it's also kind of the average. And so, again, I try to connect that with our exotic animal interested veterinary students, right? And even those that want to go into the companion animal side, how do we know what we know? How do we know what to feed Bengal tigers? We're not doing large volumes of Bengal tiger research. Right. We're not, um, you know, how do we know what to feed pets and how to manufacture cat and dog diets and their nutrient requirements? There are significant challenges in running those types of digestibility studies compared to the ethics of utilizing pigs for the same purpose. And so we are able to make more scientific advances in a faster way and have more of an impact on kind of overall food production, obviously in the swine world. And so that's where we use that as our base training. And so it's usually how we draw them in is with the allure of you got to learn this first, and then you can apply that into your specific animal of choice. And along the way, usually it doesn't take them very long to get exposure into a barn to start to recognize, oh, this is actually kind of amazing. And so um, once we get them into a barn, and especially my bias is with nursery pigs, if we can get them into nursery pigs um, or into some sows, uh, then after that point, they're kind of hooked. And maybe they never thought about that as a potential career avenue, but um, they're much more interested in the swine industry. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's always one of my favorite things is can we just go hold a pig for a while and
0: yeah, all exactly. love with that
2: holding of that baby pig <laughs> and thing. life is great, right? There's, there's nothing better. Um for sure. Well, let's talk about that. So you you've convinced the student now that they're interested in swine nutrition. What's the process? How do they go about um getting into a graduate school program?
0: Yeah, I think what people sometimes don't understand is that um and I'd love to hear your perspective too, but I probably get you know 5 to 10 solicitation emails a week. Um would you say something similar?
2: yes yeah. i would say so about one right. day
0: yeah. and and i think that there's cert- there're probably others that get that on a daily basis but um you know I, there's a lot of demand and especially international interest in students coming to work with um, faculty in the united states that are established in research programs and so as you kind of work with students and think through that process first thing that I'm always just a little making sure that I don't have any red flags of is their motivations for why to attend graduate school in the first place. Right. And so sometimes students hear about it as undergrads and they see grad students as their TAs or they kind of get exposure to graduate school and they think, oh, I can I can delay real life right? And so I didn't get into vet school, or I don't know what I want to do with my career. And so instead of making these hard decisions about, you know, being an adult, I can just keep going to school. And that sounds like a great thing. And I am not saying that that's not a viable option, but that's not a great reason to go to graduate school, right? And so um, I work with a lot of students as they kind of first gain exposure to graduate school, and then start thinking through the process of their motivations and why to attend graduate school to help them really kind of think more critically about what do they want to learn? What types of skills are they hoping to attain that would be different than a bachelor's degree in the case of our institution? um, And what types of jobs are they hoping to get to as they kind of make that transition and is graduate school really the appropriate next step for them? And I think you're
2: absolutely right. That is one that I hear a lot is what can I do with a master's degree? What can I do with a PhD degree? And how is that different from a BS degree? And so maybe let's talk a little bit about what those different degrees might offer for, for positions.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's we'll probably talk in somewhat generalities because I'm the You know, as much as I love education and I work in education, my mom, you know, was was an educator and was a middle school English teacher. And and I am a big believer in education. But at the same time, I am not an education snob in that I will be the first to tell you that some of the dumbest people I've ever met are some of the most educated and some of the smartest people I have ever met do not have higher education in their background. And so I want to like just put that out there. One does not need necessarily, you know, the certificates on the wall to get to a significant area of advancement within their careers, but it can make things easier. Right? Or it can open some additional doors perhaps faster. And so um, I don't want to put any limitations on really anybody, because I think if you work hard and you're a good person, um, you know, I think I'm a pretty big believer that the world is your oyster and and you can kind of do what you want with it, regardless of how far you progress in certain areas. And you can make life choices along the way. But that said, I think that there are certainly some things that as you study and go through graduate school to earn a bachelor's degree or earn a master's degree or earn a PhD or a DVM, that there are some specific skills that will help you advance perhaps more quickly um, or more efficiently to a different level than um, if you're interested in getting to that level without that higher education.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's a really good point. And I, I don't disagree. I think that's, that's something we sometimes forget is that experience is, is just as good as an education many times, or sometimes even a little better, depending on the experiences that you get. And I'm always intrigued talking to people where their career path has gone and how they've gotten to where they're at. And most of the time, people would say they never would have expected to end up wherever they're at and, you know, education, degrees, whatever doesn't really mean much. It's more networks and, and those experiences. Um, and I, I think that's very good, you know, and, and so when we think about what an animal nutritionist does with a PhD, it's, it's a lot of, I always try to remind people that the reason why we're getting the PhD is to train us to be critical thinkers. It's, yes, we're learning nutrition along the way, but it's more about how can we think critically? If you give me a problem, can I, look into the references, look into the material that we have at hand, reach out to individuals that I believe are experts in this field and come up with some type of rational thought, discussion, argument, um, decision, et cetera. And and I think that's the one piece that, that I like to remind people is that's probably that difference between the first graduating with a BS degree versus your first job with a PhD degree is there is an expectation of the degree in which you have learned to be a critical thinker.
0: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And you know, we we tend to talk that um, you know, with a, a bachelor's degree, there's a certain s- level of knowledge and skills um, that you're expected to have demonstrated and and carry with you about um, kind of production agriculture and how the agricultural community and system works. And so there's a a level of base knowledge um, that's established, but um, at the same time, you're probably not critically evaluating data at that point, especially, you know, early career. Um, Whereas with a master's degree, we're probably at the point where we're expecting you to be able to not design, but to implement um, and likely interpret the results of science. And the the results of that innovation. And as you go to the next level at the PhD, those first jobs and that kind of early career, you're identifying and designing kind of the innovation and dreaming a little bit more of what that looks like. And so um, it's a little bit of a personality aspect, you know. And, And so I think you have to have a little bit of that natural curiosity Um, in order to have a PhD be something that makes sense. Um, Because I've had students and graduate students in the past that maybe don't have as much of that natural curiosity and they're very comfortable and their strength is really in be analyzing the data that comes to them and interpreting it and implementing kind of the what that means. And in those situations, you know, we talk about, well, what types of careers are really best suited for you? And is a PhD really necessary? And then likewise, you know, as we look at back to the bachelor's level student, um, you know, what types of skills are you hoping to advance to? And, um, you know, I think that it's just ultimately what, I don't think that there's a glass ceiling, maybe as much as there has been in the past in terms of being qualified for specific levels of degree programs. But, um, certainly your ability to critically evaluate data, use that data and information to make decisions and implement those decisions within a, within a production system or within a real world environment, that's kind of the value that a, a graduate degree provides. And then if you're wanting to take that to the next level of designing those experiments and dreaming about how do I go about determining this, that's where I think ultimately the PhD is appropriate. And um, I remember just being terrified as a Ph.D. student because I was working on, on you know, I, my Ph.D. was on fallback pigs. And I was like, how in the world, you know, what if I don't end up working with fallback pigs in my future? And, you know, I was in kind of such a narrow area that I was like, well, but what if, you know, and I guess I didn't fully recognize at the time that it was not what I was researching. It was the act of how to design and carry out and, and interpret that research that I was really learning. Um, and so the research was really just a vehicle for that training. Um, but I think sometimes it's, it's uh, we expect the skills to be directly, uh, or the knowledge to be directly transferable, where really it's the skills and the abilities that we're refining during the graduate process.
2: Yeah, and I think that's something that certainly has, has evolved as you and I have gone through the graduate student program to where it is today. I can remember going through my, my master's and PhD program and being told, be careful what you pick, because whatever you pick, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, which was very intimidating. And there are. There are people out there that, I mean, they found something in their PhD program that they're passionate about, and they have. They have continued to pursue that. But there are many of us Whereas you mentioned it was more of the vehicle and the training process that helped us. That our later jobs is not necessarily exactly what we picked before. There might be pieces that are still there, but it's not the whole the whole thing that we were originally told that that's what you were going to do the rest of your life. And I think that's important for people to think about because if you're told this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, if you go to grad school. That can be very intimidating for a young individual, um, because even as, as high school students, being told you'd have to pick something is hard. Four years later, it's not necessarily much easier. And as I joke, even 10 years after that, it's not yep. always, <laughs> so, it. you know, it, I think it's, you know, helping people understand this is not you're not picking your path. And this is the only direction you're going to go the rest of your life. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is really, It's. I know that it's terrifying for kind of the 16, 17-year-olds as we're working with them to identify, you know, is K-State the right place for them? Is animal science the right place for, you know, and a Bachelor's of Science, the the right path for them in their future? Um. You know, and it seems to just be very, it resonates very well with them and be very comforting if we kind of start with the message of, you don't have to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life, right? Like, this is a degree that... Is really applicable to a huge variety of different careers and and opportunities. And then likewise, as you know, even though as you're earning those graduate programs, you're deepening your knowledge, you're really not necessarily narrowing your opportunities. And I think sometimes we see it as that, but I really think that that has probably changed, especially over the past um, couple of decades, as we've trained graduate students. as um, especially how we manage production systems today, and and the sophistication with which the thought process is behind them, where there are a significant more number of jobs where you know back back in the day, you know if you had a PhD, a lot of times that meant you wanted to go be a faculty member, and um, now there are a lot of PhDs that are managing multi million dollar companies and um, production systems, and utilizing that skill set that they developed but utilizing it maybe in a different way to manage nutritional programs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned just a
2: minute ago about how you help a high schooler decide if K-State is the best place for them. How do you go through that process with a student that's thinking about graduate school? What What advice do you give them as far as when to apply for graduate school and how to determine where to go?
0: Yeah, um, you know, that's it's something that first, again, we kind of identify motivations, right? So what are you hoping to attain? What are you interested in? Um, and, and for us, we're really fortunate that we have a, a great undergrad research program that helps expose students pretty early on in their academic career um, into that type of experience so that they can identify if the world of research is something that they're even interested in. And um, I'm such a proponent of, of the undergrad research side. I think, um, you know, regardless if someone's going to go to grad school or not, it's it's important because if they're a veterinarian, I want them to know how to read scientific papers so that they can use data to make decisions. If they're a producer, I want them to know and be able to use the data in, um, you know, a pamphlet that someone's showing them to determine which vaccine program is the most effective for them. And so... Um, that's something that, that we're really pushing. And I think higher ed, especially is starting, especially in the animal sciences to really value that undergrad research and bringing that into the undergraduate curriculum. That's a great place for us to start is getting those students involved in some type of undergraduate research experience so they can start to see, is this, you know, something that I might be interested in? Because there will be plenty of students that start that process and go, this is not for me. And that's a good thing for them to figure out at that stage. Um, and so um, that's one where, you know, kind of we'll usually expose students through some type of undergrad research experience. Maybe if they're if if that's gone well and they've maybe shadowed a student, maybe they'll have their own independent project. And then we kind of start to to work them into better understanding and, and targeting, OK, well, what type of skills and what type of level of job in, in the sciences are you interested in? And. Um, you know, is that a master's degree? Is that a PhD? And usually we're hoping, you know, in the perfect world that they're making these decisions somewhere around the time that they're kind of a junior late of the late, late part of their junior year. Because at that point, we want them to start contacting and networking with potential mentors. So that they're, um, you know, and that's something that, that we connect them with. And, Um, You know, we always want to place our students in in the best places and with strong faculty. And so helping them navigate that process of understanding you don't do grad school, you don't pick an institution, right? This is not like a professional master's program where you're getting an MBA from this university and this is the prestige that comes with it. It's not even like a veterinary school where you're going based on the reputation of a program you're really going to work with a mentor. And so instead of finding or identifying an institution, you're instead identifying a mentor. And that's a different process for a lot of students is helping them navigate that process of identifying a mentor, making sure that they have funding, that they're open and available um, and and helping them navigate that process is probably one of the more challenging things to help them learn how to, how to work that piece.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I... I always push that as well with my students is there's, there's many times I'm happy to take students on, but it has to be a mutual fit. And it's not you mentioned is it, exactly right. It's a mentor. It's a it's a relationship. It's not necessarily a boss and an employee. It's not a teacher and a student. It's this different type of relationship. And, and I always tell the students wherever you go, when you're doing this process, you're interviewing that person because you have to be comfortable talking to that person, having conversations and being able to get feedback from them, it may not always be the most pleasant, but you understand that they're trying to develop you and grow you. And if, if it's not that type of relationship, then it's just not the place for you, no matter what their program is. And and I think that's always important for students when they're trying to make the selection process is um, they're going to do so much better if they're working with somebody that they're comfortable with, rather than than just because that's the program that that they think they need to be at.
0: Yep, and and I mean, just making sure, right? The mutual interests that you're working in an area that's interesting to you, but and and you may have something similar. You know, students are drawn to the exceptional teachers. They're drawn to to those that maybe they're comfortable with that they have exposure to, and so it's part of our job is to help kind of push them to look externally, right? And so. Um, what are the characteristics in a graduate school mentor that, um, you know, in terms of what's their reputation for training students, for getting them graduated, for helping them connect into the industry, all of those, um, different items and, and, uh, yeah, helping them identify is their research area an area that you're interested in developing a skill set in versus do you like them as a person? Are they a comfortable fit for you? So both of those both of those sides need to be true. Absolutely. I agree. How about um,
2: the last thing I'm going to ask you, I think really kind of goes back to mentors themselves as we're talking about them. Um, you probably had a few mentors as you were going through grad school. You probably identified with um, people beyond as your your two major professors through your master's and PhD. Were there women that, that were mentors to you? Were there more men that were mentors to you? Or you know, how did you create that that mentor relationship beyond just your major professor?
0: Yeah, um, you know, and and those of you that are are familiar with kind of how Case State Swine works, you're aware of that right? You kind of get all five of them, and so that was really a huge advantage and and very influential to me in my training of kind of how to how highly effective teams can work together. Um, and still provide a level of support for students. Um, and then I transitioned into a totally different situation with, with John, and um, patients at Iowa State, where he was kind of a one man show, right? And, um, he certainly was a great collaborator and, and is a great collaborator. Um, and, um, but I learned so much from just their differences and, and in many cases similarities, but also differences in their mentorship style. So that helped me kind of better understand how I wanted to be a mentor moving forward. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say I kind of had a group of six graduate mentors because I had five at K State and then I had, had John at, at Iowa State, right? Um, along the way, you know, it, I was one that there's not maybe a specific female that stuck out to me, um, as one that, that I can point to, but, um, at the same time, you know there were and still are a lot of female faculty, and I think, I mean, I was not explicitly looking or not looking for for gender in my decision making process of of who were mentors, but what what is something that was important to me and continues to be important to me is that um, all of my mentors um, significantly valued family and significantly valued. Um, Even as a graduate student, a a reasonable work-life balance. And so I could see how they emulated that. And you're still a grad student, right? You know, you still are collecting samples on Christmas Day if that's when the research project falls. Um, But at the same time, um, they helped me understand how to kind of be a full person. And and in my case, I think my, my strongest mentors happened to be men. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, again, I, I wasn't explicitly seeking or not seeking a specific gender for that, but I, I fully appreciate, especially in the role that I am now, um, their commitment to family and their appreciation for that. So that that's something that I could understand and see and, and work to emulate on my own.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was in the same way. All of my major professors, even in my postdoc were, were male mentors and, um, there were very few, actually, for me that were female when I started in graduate school. We we had Gretchen Hill, we had Natalie Trotier starting to come through, um, but it was mainly men. And it, and I still relate a lot to some of my my colleagues that are that are there. And to me, you're exactly right. It doesn't matter if they're male or female. It's more about are they portraying the things that I need or helping me manage balance. Um, Find the information, whatever it is, whether it's family personal life or or work related and and so i I'm the same way as you, cassie. It doesn't really matter to me; it's more just how are they um emulating exactly what what we want to be or hope to be or aspire to be someday so
0: yeah. And I'm unfortunate. I had strong female mentors in other areas. Right. I'm, I'm close with my mom. I have some some great matriarchs in our family um, who were working women and and professionally successful women uh, and and really valued a profession. Um, but then likewise, I have a number of friends that, um, you know, are probably the hardest working people I know as stay at home moms and god bless them right and um i think along the way it it has been helpful for me to see even though they weren't necessarily my formal professional mentors see and have exposure to professional women in the workplace because i do want to recognize right there is uh, even though i have the most involved husband right and i my husband changed the diapers and shoot, we had twins. And so he was often feeding at the same time that I was right. And so um I had a, have a very involved husband and, and we co-parent very well together. But there's still a significant maybe emotional burden that tends to fall to mom. It's not always the case, but um, you know, the keeping track of the schedules, and you know, I, I've certainly read some of the sto- some of the the papers on you know just the the emotional and mental Olympics of being a working mom and managing you know an eight year old schedule, an eleven year old schedule, and I know who has this dentist appointment and who has to go to this practice tonight, and all of those things that. I don't know if I do that because my husband doesn't. I'm sure he would and does manage that when I'm not there. He manages on his own, but I probably, you know me, I'm pushy. Right. And so I probably just take that on myself. But at the same time, that's that's a real thing that has been documented, that there is kind of that that emotional status of being being mom and um, there is a little bit of a difference at times and, and even in co-parent situations where you have strong strong um, parenting from, from both sides. I was fortunate to have maybe not female professional mentors, but still have the ability to have access and exposure to women that were able to, to do it all. Right. But at the same time, you could see struggles and you could have real conversations. And I have some ex- some of my very good friends now who continue to be my mentors and we can discuss and have the same types of conversations of the challenges of trying to manage the the family life and be a professional female in the workplace. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think that it's there. There certainly are all the opportunities in the world, regardless of of your gender. But. Um, but um, I, I think it's important to maybe recognize that. But also, I don't want to take anything away from my mentors. They are as significant of family men as as there are, and I'm fortunate to have studied underneath them.
2: Yeah, they're they're wonderful men. All of those that you've that you've talked about today, and I think that your message is right on point. You know, we're focusing on grad school, and it does not matter which gender you are. Um, it's more about the process. Are you interested in in this type of education, are you interested in these opportunities that grad school affords you and um, there are opportunities about for, for um, all types of people. And so um, it's more about just, is this the right fit for you? So Cassie, as we wrap up our time together, are there a couple key points that you'd like the audience to take away from our conversation today?
0: Sure. Um, so one of the things and, and maybe it's just helpful for it, for um, maybe this demographic for kind of who listens to, to the Swine Ed podcast. I don't think that they always recognize that most students that are coming into animal science today, at least in my experience, um, come in planning to be veterinarians. Right. Because they don't know another professional animal scientist. And uh, likewise, most of them have no intent of ever working in the swine industry. And so it's really important, again, from the mentorship side to help them gain exposure um, to the swine industry, to gain exposure to nutrition and the careers and the opportunities and the sophistication of the science and the impact that you can have within it. I also very much want to express my appreciation to those folks that have, have and continue to offer internships so that students that, you know, maybe if we can convince them, to, uh, to maybe even look at the swine industry. There's a lot of internship opportunities and uh, that are willing to take a shot on students that don't have a significant background in the swine industry. Those are very, very impactful for our students. Um, so I think that's one aspect is, you know, there's there's not enough kids that come from a production egg background to fill all the career goals that we need. And so it's our job to help them translate Their interest, their love for animals into potentially a swine nutrition career in the future. Um, The second point if someone's really interested in explicitly swine nutrition, find a great mentor and identify um, the type of research you want to do, but more importantly, the type of person that you want to study under. And um, identify not necessarily the institution, but really who um, is doing the type of research. And managing it in a way that, that fits your life the best. So, yeah, those are probably my two main points. Yeah, those are great points, Cassie.
1: It's time for our famous three. Swine Podcast is only possible with the support of forward looking and innovative companies like Eastman Works with You to Accelerate Your Nutritional Program Innovation. Start your journey with us at eastman.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Pivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers.
2: Well, as we wrap up, some of the things we like to do with our speakers, we like to ask a couple of questions. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, since we are talking about swine today, what is your uh, go-to swine resource?
0: Oh, man. So probably, and I'm looking uh, down at my bookshelf because I'm still... You know, as much as I am, you know, a fan of Google Scholar, that's probably, honestly, my go-to swine resources is, is Google Scholar at this point. But I am still a big fan of the Swine Nutrition Blue Book uh, by um uh, Lee and, um uh, right, it's a... Uh, Yep. Lewis and Southern. (laughs) And I still uh, actually yesterday I pulled it out because I it's just such a great framework for um, taking a step back and looking at a holistic problem in a very reasonable set of steps and um, kind of bites of information. And so um, it's it's uh, one that I still utilize and it's it's my favorite. Absolutely. It's a good
2: book. How about something that's not related to pigs? Is there anything you might recommend?
0: Um, so on the professional side, I'm not a big kind of business book reader. I try to kind of lose myself actually a little bit in, you know, historic literature and, um, uh, um, kind of different, different, um, you know, suspense novels. But I do love, um, uh, Strengths Finder. I, I really value the use of Strengths Finder for, for students as they're kind of making their transition and prioritize their their strengths for their potential future careers. But even within our graduate students, within our faculty teams, helping identify what are the strengths of your team members, of those that you work around and work with. And then I also really appreciate the five dysfunctions of a team. And um, I always try to kind of flip it on its side and talk more about the positives. But I see a lot of myself in um, that very short book of the five dysfunctions of a team. So if you haven't read that one, um, that's one that helps me every time I listen to it or, or I read it, be, become a better team member by recognizing some of the some of the significant pitfalls that that come with um, teamwork and dysfunctional teamwork.
2: Yeah, very good. Those are very good books. We use StrengthsFinder a lot in our office as well. The, the last question I'd like to ask of you today, Cassie, um, really goes back to uh, if you could think of somebody as we've been talking about that you view as successful in your life, what's a key trait about them that that has allowed them to that you think has allowed them to be successful?
0: Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different people that I can point to as as being successful and, and people, um, the one that, uh, you know, the quote that I have on, on my, my bulletin board behind me is, uh, is a quote from Wayne Cast. And so I think that he's one that a lot of our audience would probably point to as someone who would be successful, um, and is successful. And, um, I think what I just so admire about Wayne is a a curiosity but an um, in inherent, um, you know, there's 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 no ego there. Right. And so just, you know, he's the person who will call 15 people and take the average opinion and use that to help him make decisions. And he's one that I would point to as one of the most knowledgeable and respected nutritionists of our time and calls us and or calls me and asks me my opinion from time to time right and i'm like why are you asking me i should be asking you all of these questions right and and you tell me what your thoughts are you have the experience and and you have the knowledge base and even at the, the stat state that he is in his career he still is constantly trying to learn from others around him and um Recognize the strengths of others and utilize the strengths of others to make the most informed decision for the situation and for his people. And I really admire that trait. I agree, and I've heard curiosity a lot lately as well from
2: some others. And so I think that is that is a great trait, and it, it comes without the ego. And I think that's that's extremely important as well. Well, Cassie, I do see that our time is up, and it, it's been so much fun visiting with you today. And I, I do want to thank you for your time. So. Again, for our audience, this is Dr. Cassie Jones, who is a professor at Kansas State University. Cassie, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura.
1: Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to eliteswinenutritionist.com.